Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, episode 18, Your Calm and Nourished Brain. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio. If you're a loyal listener, thanks for coming back and thanks for tuning in if this is your first time here. I'm Anthony Santa in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith. How are you today, Michael? I'm doing great. Good to hear. Michael, please introduce yourself and let our listener know who you are. Okay, so I practice integrative medicine and I do that by combining the leading edge sciences of functional medicine and nutritional medicine with the vast experience and wisdom of traditional Chinese medicine. I've been doing it for 20 years, and uh, balancing that out as a patient, I work with um, Crohn's disease, colitis, and COPD. I'm Anthony Santa, and I am something of an online marketing smarty pants. Uh, Michael and I have gotten together over the past couple of years, initially as me being a patient, and uh, today as being the producer and, I guess, the tech guy behind uh, everything that happens here with the podcast. Um, I've got a background in health of my own. I'm that guy that goes down the rabbit holes of nutrition that I find on uh, online. And um, Michael's an inspiration to me in terms of how it is that he talks about health. So uh, we've gotten together to create this podcast uh, for you, the listener. Today's podcast, uh, it's called Your Calm and Nourished Brain. This is part of a series of brain-related podcasts. Um, we're doing a series of four. This is episode two of that series. Uh, Michael, give us a recap. What did we talk about the last time? So just quickly for context, we're doing this around the four seasons. So the last one was with respect to the season of fall, which in the medicine wheel or native traditions uh, that I participate in have to do with your body and health in general and kind of just being introspective. Today's is about the north uh, or with the season of winter or the things that have to do with kind of hibernation and, and mindfulness in that way. So in the last podcast... We learned about the structure of your brain, the five primary lobes, um, and what they do and what it looks like when they go wrong. And then we talked about the do's and don'ts of brain health. And it gives people a chance to kind of assess, I think, subjectively how healthy their brain is based on the symptoms we talked about and the do's for your brain and the don'ts for your brain. Because if you're, you were listening to the last one and you're like, yeah, I did that do, I did another one of the do's, I've got all the do's, and I've only got two of the don'ts. And, or if you're a person who's like, oh, I've been thinking about doing all of the do's and I should probably stop doing all of the don'ts, then you can kind of just self-assess how much you could do to improve the health of your brain. And uh, a very um, long, introspective uh, podcast. Yeah, that was the longest geek out we've done so far. Yeah, and... Um, <laughs> If this is uh, something that's of interest to you, brain health and that sort of thing, Michael made this suggestion uh, listening to the last episode, episode 17, a number of times because it is so in-depth. And uh, brain health is something that's vitally important to the health of our body. And that was one of the takeaways I got from the, uh, the podcast about how uh, brain health and nutrition is a huge factor in how um, not just my body runs, I mean, I don't just eat vitamins and all this good, healthy food just to make my body work. It's what my brain does with all that good, healthy stuff, too. And there's this theme um, that I think I've always had a suspicion about, but on the last two podcasts ago, Anthony made a comment that really brought it to light that we, I think, naturally, subjectively assume that if we feel okay, 
sort of implicitly our brain is okay. And you, um, maybe that may be true. But what happens for a lot of people is as the brain perhaps very gradually diminishes uh, over time, the subjective experience of you changes so slowly. I think the metaphoric image is the frog being cooked very slowly by turning the stove up bit by bit. In the boiling water. In the boiling water that um, you may still be thinking you're fine because your memory of yourself recently is still the same and fine. But over a decade, you may be you know, losing percentages of brain function. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, certainly that's something that uh, has given me some pause for uh, reflection. Um, learning more about brain health, um, a huge focus for me over the past decade or more has been uh, what makes my belly sore. <laughs> and that's a leftover word from when I was a little, little kid because I've had digestive issues for years and certainly learning about how brain health um, is uh, paramount to uh I guess all of the other things that are going on in my body in terms of uh, the health. So we're here today talking about um, ways to calm and nourish your brain as part of the process of being healthy uh, from the neck up. So uh, what do you have to say about all that, Michael? Well, with respect to um, kind of like in the four seasons, so if the last one is about the idea of health, we know what goes wrong, why, what to do about it. The assumption is you're on that path, you know, you're doing more of the do's and less of the don'ts. So as we get into a sense of less problems, the idea now is to try uh, and experiment with different things to get more into um, a positive self-assessment by going, how resilient and calm and grounded am I compared to where I was at weeks or months or years ago, or to other people in my family or where I work. And and it's not a contest in the sense of, oh, oh my brain's better than yours. Um, but in the way of sort of a gradual, in-depth exploration and improvement of that subjective experience of your brain. Now, it's one thing in the sense of being actively smart, actively funny, actively uh, loving, compassionate, and all of those things in the way that we're kind of out in the world. And that says a lot to ourselves and other people about who we are as a person, but also the health of our, our, our brain and things like that. And lots of, of other things too. But there's this other way of looking at how healthy we are as a person. And that's by going deep into the quieter places, you know, deep into the, uh, I don't know, for some reason I just pictured somebody in a hot tub, you know, in the sense of, oh, I'm finally where I need to be and I'm relaxing and there's nothing that's going to jump out of the hot tub and make my life suddenly intense or stressful. There's no sharks in the tub. Hopefully not. So uh, that's sort of the context of the the North in the sense of the seasons and the, we call medicine wheeling teachings. In, you know, most of the memory of most people in this part of the world, you know, or in Canada up North, winter was a time of basically sitting around for my people in a pit house, you know, which is a building that's pretty small and buried in the ground, um, made from things you could... Uh, manufacturer put together without metal tools, which has been going on for, you know, 10, 20,000 years. So imagine that you're spending, you know, months in this situation where you all just get to hang hope, out, ho- hopefully enjoy the stories and the smells of each other's farts and everything else. <laughs> but in this, that sense is, you know, there's a time in life, which is the opposite of busy. There needs to be a time in life where there's the opposite of being physically, uh, under demand. I think I brought this up about in the first or second podcast, how in midlife, a lot of people 
uh, who are having chronic problems because they're into too much stamina-based sports, uh, too much stress, maybe the wrong kind of food, not enough sleep. You know, midlife, got to save up for retirement, so we're all burning the candle at both ends. And people come into my clinic and they say, well, you know, I got this, I got that. And I'm like, well, I think you need to do winter. And the weird slack look people get when they have no idea how we got from <laughs> I'm getting depressed to what? <laughs> you know, but again, it's a context where if we were to actually do winter, at least for three months or something like that in our lives where our whole focus was on the relative stillness, calmness, uh, spaciousness and things like that. And that was what was the most positive thing to focus on because, and it happens a lot, especially around people in their early forties where they need to do winter. And if they don't, they get sicker. The idea of winter, um, makes me think of, I can't keep going forever in my car. Eventually I need to stop and pull over and get gas and stretch and go take a whiz and whatever it is I need to do when I go for a pit stop. So not everything has, uh, we're not perpetual motion machines. Nope. There needs to be an opportunity to sort of, um, stop and regroup. And, uh, as it relates to brain health, the, the point that you made last week about, um, eating and fasting and how that gives the, you, you had the, um, uh, renovation analogy of uh, always interrupting the renovation process uh, of the repair in our brain, uh, always renovating and interrupting that and never having the right time frame or right opportunity for things to actually uh, rebuild. Um, and so that's the, that's the one thing that sort of stuck with me, even through as you're talking about it today, that the brain is, um, well, you're the doctor. What's the word for it? Is it plastic? Is it able uh, to? Well, there's what's called neuroplasticity, uh, hmm. which I'll talk to you in a sec, but... Um, I think the, with the renovation metaphor, which I've used for decades around trying to help people actually like stay on plan if, with respect to brain health, the thing you don't want is degeneration. And the thing you do want is regeneration. And luckily most degeneration that happens through life, through illness, through I don't know, food allergies, through drug addiction, whatever, luckily the degeneration can be regenerated, uh, to a point. Mm, yeah. And so it's very possible to improve one's health by, um, stopping by doing winter. Mm -hmm. and, that's and, the plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's what we're on about today. So, um, tell me more about that sort of, uh, idea of winter and, and I guess maybe in more, um, everyday terms, mm -hmm. uh, how does that actually affect me? If I'm the kind of person who's always going and going and going, and I know that I need to stop, um, uh, what, what kind of things do I need to, to be considered of um, in terms of what I guess, what could I expect by stopping? Um, or is that even a direction that you want to go to with, uh, with the conversation today? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure stopping is possible in the 21st century, but if, if each day uh, is going to be like an indie car race, you're going to have to pull over and change your tires every once in a while and get some gas every once in a while to get through the 500 miles. The reason I bring up that imagery is the idea of a pit stop. Mm -hmm. So if you're deciding, okay, it's winter, it's hibernation time, but I still have to work and feed my kids and pay my bills and do things like that. It's taking the gradual patient wise approach of spacing things out and maybe having a little stretching time in the morning while you listen to something inspiring about being consistent and, you know, being a wiser, calmer and nicer person, uh, which is sometimes what I do when I get up. I mean, if I listen to like a Zen master talk about something, I mean, I'm 
his people for the rest of the day. I mean, that's where I want to be. Uh, quite often when I'm, I work with people, especially people who have, you know, kids and busy evenings and um, a lot going on and a job, they come home from work and now they're in a state of impatience because they've been busy all day and then they've got everything to do at home. If you come home and then just ask your family for 20 minutes where you just go and lie horizontally to reset your metabolism so that you're not running on cortisol, then all of a sudden you get back into a state of patience and that evening is going to be very different because you're going to have so much more energy and patience and awareness for your kids, your partner, your you might be making a suddenly much more you know delicious meal because you're actually going, yeah, let's have some fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so I can, uh, on that, we mentioned that in the last podcast as well about, um, having a nap and allowing the brain to sort of catch up, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, do, um, what would be a good analogy, allowing the brain to sort of file all that information that I collected over the past, however long when you stop, you can actually like do it without actually piling more stuff on the desk. Yeah. Okay. So that's one of the first things that happens when you do sleep uh, or nap deeply or meditate deeply is uh, the neural pathways that you're building today because of new experiences today are going to be reinforced. And the ones that don't really matter are going to be basically thrown into the recycle bin. Mm. Yeah. Well, that, when you said that, the image of a sleeping baby, you know, it's like, oh, wow, I've been awake for half an hour. Oh, I better nap for the next three because I've just learned a whole bunch of like really awesome things. Wow, yeah. blue. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. Oh, I what? need a nap. It's a puppy. Is that a dangerous thing or not? No, it's cute. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. need a nap. Yeah. And, and that, that's true, especially if people like in school, uh, you know, you just started a new job. Uh, maybe you're just moved in with your partner and you're like, oh, you're so much more to learn about you than I thought. <laughs> you know, or whatever. I mean, that's that's the thing. And that brings up the context of neuroplasticity. Which is, uh, you know, as you like to say, 25 cent word about um, how neuropathways, um, you know, which are basically like electrical wiring in the sense of an easy image, your neurological structure inside your brain is relatively fixed and you're always relatively learning. Now, if you run into a situation around trauma, addiction, chronic pain, um, anxiety, depression, even insomnia, um, some of those things are now like habits that are burned into the wiring of your brain. And once you put the impulse through the neural pathways of your brain, they're predictably going to go through those particular, you know, that particular shape, which is going to present and, and subjectively feel like that experience, anxiety, depression, insomnia, uh, really big with addiction and, and things like that. So neuroplasticity basically invites us to the opportunity that you can like the baby you you know brought up a couple of minutes ago, bring new pathways into your brain and obviously change the old ones for something else. And there's lots and lots about it. I would encourage anyone to go online and look at, I don't know, Bruce Lipton's work on neuroplasticity or, you know, anyone else out there that's kind of up in that part of the field, because isn't that an amazing opportunity that if you pull the car over into the pit stop or commit a few months of your life to a more calm, nourishing, consistent, uh, spacious experience. You now have the opportunity because of a lack of degeneration, a lack of constant things to do to fundamentally rearrange and fix or change in any way that you choose the structure of your brain, which is how you remember yourself and how you instinctually now respond to life. Yeah. And I, I I mean, it's so profound for me. I just have to say it again, that improving the mechanics and the way my brain works, giving it the opportunity to actually fix and heal itself, 
um, is part and parcel what needs to happen for me to have, be healthy from the neck down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This so, is so cool. Yeah. So <laughs> let's say step one would be um, you have to get rid of all of the things that are going to be an insult to your brain. And if you want to get into all that, just listen to the last pet podcast and maybe the one before it. And maybe the one, two or three before that on therapeutic enemas because of all the things you can do <laughs> to help your brain by just taking care of your gut. So step one, get rid of all the things that actually put your brain into a fight or flight or a degenerative or a reactive or an impatient place. Step two is about neuroplasticity. And the weirdest thing about neuroplasticity is there's this thing, what I would call neural rigidity, which is the opposite, um, which takes around 10 weeks before your brain will finally actually say, okay, I'm going to start changing the actual, you know, motherboard of how your brain looks. Uh, And I'm going to play this out as uh, the most common example in the way I see this. So uh, I train people around fitness and martial arts and other things. And um, it's always around week nine when the people I'm training just get really weirdly emotional or they catch the flu or they just get really clumsy or all these other things happen because, and this is my own little pet theory, the structure and function of your brain has to believe that it's doing the best job that it can. And then it's an instinctual thing for your brain to say, you know, man, like I got to know what I'm doing and you're changing everything. You're exercising every day. You're meditating every day. You're eating all this really good fish and other stuff. And, you know, the brain is going to sit there and kind of clutch onto itself for that, you know, week nine to 10. And then if you just push through that barrier, so like I call it the neural rigidity wall, uh, then your brain will actually say, fine, I will take apart the old version of me and reinforce this new version of me. It almost sounds like the brain sort of goes at the nine week mark. Really? Are you sure? Hang on, wait a minute. I don't know. Mm, really? Uh, and you just keep leaning onto it and sort of goes, okay. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's been my experience. Uh, every time I've gone through that, if I pick up a new uh, training habit or uh, other thing or, you know, there's all kinds of things I could use for examples. But the, the takeaway is if you commit to something around neuroplasticity and or fitness and or all kinds of other things in your life, you're just going to have to work through that three or four months that it takes for your physiology to say, right, and with the renovation analogy, okay, now we're going to take you know the house apart and put it back together again. And once you do that, and this is the coolest thing ever, that's the way you remember yourself from that day on. The brain physically reworks itself yep. so that there's no... Um, it's burnt the bridge. Yeah. You can't go back to the way it was. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is a weird aside, but I, 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 I have to bring it up cause it's got lots of angles to it. So I did this thing two weeks ago in the gym. Uh, I woke up in the morning with this crazy idea. I'm going to go and lift a hundred thousand pounds in a hundred minutes. And actually that's not that much. It sounds like a lot, but it was more about just organizing, uh, like I'll take a hundred pounds and lift it 10 times and then do 10 sets and then, um, and do all these different exercises. And I was like, wow, that makes a hundred thousand pounds. And that's, that's not even a really intense workout, but it was a fun frame of reference to do that. And, uh, it was harder than I usually work out. Cause I mean, I'm not a competitive athlete anymore. I can just, you know, putter along. I like to stay fit, but I don't have to like hurt myself. <laughs> but I guess that day I decided to hurt myself. And, um, I made the decision since then that I'm going to try and do that every week because it just frames a very certain kind of uh, crucible that my physiology, I mean, I'm turning 48 pretty soon. Um, that's just an example of taking your, your physiology. I mean, it could be exercise, could be, you know, playing pool 
and then challenging it in a certain direction and being consistent long enough for that to be uh, who you actually are and how your body remembers itself and how your mind remembers itself. So if I decide to make that commitment and stick to it uh, within 10 weeks, then my body's going to be the body that could go to the gym and within, you know, 90, that took me 97 minutes the last time uh, to go through and lift 100,000 pounds. And that'll be the new um, normal, the new benchmark. Yeah. And I mean, the reason I brought this up on the podcast is I'm actually trying to frame a way to make that kind of a fun meme in the, the exercise social media thing, take the 100,000 pound challenge. And then potentially use that as a way as sort of fundraising for Alzheimer's or something like that. Hmm, very cool. Yeah. Anyway, a little bit of a side. Today's right. episode is sponsored by the 100,000 pound challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so here we get this a sense of neuroplasticity. We can uh, respect that it's going to take 10 weeks or more. You have to be consistent um, and you have to be in that uh, renovation place where you're not putting any adaptive stressors on your life. You know, and I mean, that's a pretty heroic commitment to make. It's a pretty heroic commitment to complete. But you know, obviously I'm not selling anything here, but I feel like I'm about to sell something. But if you do <laughs> whatever you're going to do for 10 weeks and you're committed and your life has got a good baseline, you're going to get that result and it's going to stick with you. And that's amazing. Yeah. I would say the very first number one absolutely necessary go-to thing uh, in a time of hibernation and commitment to neuroplasticity has to be meditation. Now, meditation, you, you know, you say that word into the microphone and it goes out into the future of listeners and, you know, there's a mil probably a million different ways people will say, oh, I know what you mean. Meditation isn't always just sitting on a cushion or a bench or a chair in front of an altar with incense burning around an altar of the Buddha or something. Every sports group, um, in terms of athleticism, every religion, uh, even certain military organizations, probably the Boy Scouts, everything else, they've all adopted the use of meditation. And, you know, every uh, professional athlete uh, team and all of the people around them, billion-dollar industry, meditation, visualization, that's a thing, right? So it doesn't have to have a spiritual context uh, if that's something that makes you feel a little bit nervous or weirded out. And or maybe you might get carried away with the spiritual thing in a way that isn't actually a really good idea or necessary either. And when I think of human history and evolution and stuff and growing up in the bush hunting and trapping and fishing and stuff, sitting still and being silent, being perfectly aware of your surroundings and associating every little thing that you can experience from scent trails to topography to season to everything else to make sure you can find food to not die. I mean, that's been our go-to most resourceful opportunity. Sit, shut up. <laughs> connect to what's happening in your present environment and see if there's a way to move towards some kind of benefit. Hmm. So, I mean, just throwing it out there, that's been the black belt, it's, you know, being able to shoot at a target. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's sort of like the, I don't know, the end of the game. Everything else up until then is based on how well you can meditate, which is sit down, be calm and apply your awareness in some way. Right. So for the sake of our listener, uh, when you talk about meditation, I'm picturing people in their minds. I thinking, what? He wants me to go sit out in the woods and stare at the bugs and the birds. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's just a context for how long we've relied on that as a, an essential thing. Sure. And I guess I'm bringing it forward to today. If that's something that, um, is inherent to success as, as the species, um, how does that manifest to me right now? What can you say about, uh, meditation in terms of, I guess the topic that you are brain health and nourished brain. I think step one is learning to relax. 
okay. and get calm. I mean, some people that they, they've never actually shut up. How do you mean? I mean, they've just had constant uh, rumination, ideation, and, and rehearsal of conversations every waking moment of their life. Hmm. Yeah, I think I know a few people like that. You know, I mean, I've experienced that at times in my life when I've had, you know, too much going on, which occasionally I do to myself. And, you know, then it's like, oh, I'm starting to like run around in my head again. Damn. You know, I, I had the experience uh, different points in my life, um, most recently with video games. So the idea of meditating, see if, see if this makes sense to you, where um, whatever it is that my brain was latched onto um, and tossing over and over again and not getting anywhere with, introduce video game, you know, first person shooter, run around, do all this kind of stuff where I don't have a choice but to think about that game. It's like my brain can't do two things at once. Maybe it can, I don't know, but I couldn't couldn't not think about that video game after playing the video game for uh, an hour or so later, and it was very refreshing. It was almost like a giant reset button because I didn't have this compelling um, uh, self-defeating thought that I had before the video game, and I almost couldn't remember it. It was like I had this vague reference to where it actually existed in my mind, but I had no connection to it. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty interesting. And I mean, I've played some video games with my son, uh, I don't know, a few years ago when he was really into them because that's sort of a native tradition. You do things with your kids, even if you're not pro video games. And a little note to any single moms or dads out there who have strong opinions about video games. I can guarantee you if you sit down beside your kid and play with them, they're going to like you more than if you sit there and stare at them judging them because that's not helping. Um, but I, I've, I've had the same experience um, where... You know, you're running around doing whatever you're doing in the video game and it's, you know, they make these puzzles really, really interesting and exciting and challenging and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, you know, you lie down in bed and the one part I don't like is the, it feels like my vision is spinning around the little crosshair mm. when I try to go to sleep, but your mind is going to try and solve the puzzle. And uh, I've done some public speaking actually on the pros and cons of video games. And one of the pros is it's very much like, you know, my experience as a kid, you know, moving through three-dimensional spatial nature, remembering everything that you see. Because, I mean, you're not out there in the fresh air trying to trap rabbits maybe, but, you know, you're in a three-dimensional space with projected consequences if you don't solve a spatial problem, you know, and you're going to get a similar uh, neurological neuroplasticity plus playing those kind of video games um you know in the sense of oh they're just violent and bad and they make people shoot kids in high schools hmm. yeah well i mean as an adult uh being um as far away from shooting kids in high schools as it possibly can be <laughs> um, yeah i mean it, it was again coming back to um you know brain health and that sort of stuff it, for me it almost felt like a form of Jeez, I don't know, therapy to be able to uh, stop um, and, and continue on uh, with my day without actually having the uh, recurring ideas floating around in there and just interrupting it with something that was ridiculous. You know, with, again, with meditation, I think step one is just learning that relaxation is an Asian word. Like meditation is an Asian word, uh, A-T-I-O-N, uh, communication, you know, sophistication, whatever. That part of our language, uh, in the sense of English, um, it implies that you're in a constant process of interaction through time. Communication, you can't do that alone. You know, meditation you do alone, but you do in a kind of communication with yourself. Hmm. Right? So when we get into that idea of relaxation, a lot of people just say, well, I'm sitting on the couch, I'm listening to some tunes, got my feet up, 
I must be relaxed. You know, well, you're probably going along with the beat or the sentiment of what you're listening to. So um, that's, I mean, it goes into inducing what's called the relaxation response, which is an actual metabolic shift from the more fight or flight busyness to the more rest digest, uh, again, renovation or repair kind of thing. No, I honestly, when I have patients that are, that they are actually like, I hate the idea of meditation. I'm like, okay, let's not do that. What I'm going to ask you to do is every day go and sit in a room in the corner, towards the corner, until you're really bored. And you're, you can fidget, you can chew your nails, you can, you know, pump your knees up and down as you, you know, feel like you're going to, I don't know, smash your head into the corner of the room or something. And just go, this is what it's like to be um, not engaged in any kind of activity, bored. And this is what it's like for you when there's nothing else to distract you from the fact you've been wound up like this for maybe 15 years. Mm. So the, 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 um, the baseline resting place that people, um, are presented with is pretty uncomfortable to look at. I would think. Oh, I'm just thinking of this cartoon chipmunk that drank caffeine and could run really fast. <laughs> <laughs> So that would be the, the first step, you know, just try and calm down, try and relax, or just see what it's like when you're bored. Um, the next thing I would really recommend doing is getting into what's called incremental breathing. Sorry, say that again? Uh, incremental breathing. Incremental breathing, right. So that basically means that you're going to count, say, the number of heartbeats you have as you inhale and how many heartbeats you have as you exhale or how many seconds go by or whatever. And you have to actually say out loud, one, to, in your head, you don't have to say it out loud, like in the room, but oh, oh, I love saying this out loud in your head <laughs> because you're, you're, I don't know. I think the talking brain, when you're or busy or worried, it's kind of like a puppy. You know, if you give the puppy something to chew on, it'll go and sit in the corner, wag its tail and just chew away. Cause it's finally got something to do with its teeth. When you're counting your breath, you've given the talking mind something to say. So it's a happy puppy. Mm. Right. And, and, and inevitably every two or three minutes, you're going to go from counting one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, or eight, nine, ten, or however long it takes you to breathe in and out, uh, to, uh, I'm going to make, you know, spaghetti squash spaghetti for dinner, and then I'm going to do my thing. Oh, wait, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then, you know, it goes on and on. Until the, there's a distinction that starts to happen between I'm, I'm talking out loud or counting out loud in my head, and then I'm talking about something else, to I'm counting out loud in my head, and then I'm not saying anything for a period of time. And that's the entry point into meditation, which is I fell into silence. Mm. Now, the weird thing is it's very hard to say, just shut up in an aggressive, resistant sense to the talking mind. Sometimes that works. And I'd say that's an interesting start. Just stop talking, stop talking. And if you can't stop talking, start counting. But if you say, I just need to be quiet and you become quiet, You've learned that initial lesson around meditation, which is the benefit is not doing. Mm. And again, the idea of calming the brain from uh, constantly talking, that chatter that goes on all the time is um, akin to uh, interrupting the repair process, the renovation process. If it's always yammering away, it can't actually take the time to fix and rebuild and repair. In a very subtle way, yeah, because, I mean, if you're trying to solve a problem, there's a problem. Mm. And that means you can't relax as much because there's problems. Right. And if you're trying to relax and the problems are, I don't know, sitting there tapping you on the shoulder. And have you ever seen this show, uh, Big Bang Theory, where the guy knocks on the door and then says to whoever he wants to, you know, penny, knock, 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 penny, knock, knock, knock. There's a part of the problems that's just going to keep knocking on the door incessantly saying, 
Is it my turn yet? Is it my turn yet? Are you ready yet? Come on. Come on. Stop. Mm. Stop shutting up. <laughs> yeah. Big bang theory. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's part of your, that's part of your protocol <laughs> to calm and nourish your brain is to <laughs> search YouTube for big bang theory. It's all about imagery and I'm doing my best, man. <laughs> yeah. No, it's doing a fine job. I'm just getting carried away with it. So, yeah. uh, that was, uh, number two. Yeah. And then the next thing I would say with respect to meditation is mm. again, with incremental breathing, uh, but now you're going to say count to six as you breathe in and count to six as you're breathing out. And then you're going to add something where you count to six or whatever as you breathe in. And then you're going to hold your breath for two or three counts at the top. And then you're going to count to whatever as you breathe out. And as you're holding your breath at the top, your body's going to be instinctually uncomfortable because it's like, why are we holding our breath? I want to breathe. I don't let them. And the problem thing comes up. Right. So as you can learn to relax through that instinctual little bit of discord, that's another level deeper into the relaxation response because you're relaxing through an instinct that's like, this is a problem. <laughs> and you're like, it's okay. I got this. Silence is going to take care of this or counting to take care of this. So again, the process is uh, in breath for six yeah, or nine or whatever you breathe. And then holding it for yep. three yep. and then exhaling for however long it yep. is. Yeah. And counting while you're doing that. Yeah, it's it's all all about the counting. I remember one person when I really started to study meditation deeply, a good friend of mine, um, my roommate at the time, uh, and you could see it because he'd be like rocking on his meditation stool when we were going to our teacher's uh, class, and uh, he was yelling in his head because he couldn't do it. He couldn't just sit there and calmly count. He's like screaming and it's like, one, two. It's like each number had three syllables or something. <laughs> and it took him about two months to you could stop, finally see him sitting there like perfectly still. Just, mm -hmm. But I, I asked him about that one. So I said, yeah, I got a lot going on right now. So I just yell in my head. I'm like, cool. <laughs> Although that's one way to be a stress relief, I think. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that may be where somebody starts, right? Yeah. You know, so you've got this thing where you're holding breath at the top and again, the the kind of functional thing is you have to learn to trust and relax through something instinctually uncomfortable. And this creates another opportunity, which is as you breathe in and hold your breath and you're in that problem solving kind of panic, you can pick what it is you actually want to solve and hold an intention about it. You know, I'm going to finally apologize for that thing in my relationship, or I'm going to finally clean up my fridge or whatever. And as you breathe out, you're going to breathe out that intention. So we breathe in, form the intention, see ourselves doing it in the, in the sense of imagination and then breathe out it and actually kind of commit to that being maybe the thing we do when we leave the meditation practice. What about guided meditation? I mean, I've seen that for years where... So cool. Really? Yeah. So hang on, let me get this clear in my mind then. So the idea around meditation being something that's calming to the brain and just, you know, counting my breathing and my not breathing and then my exhaling... Mm -hmm. Inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. That I can imagine would be a very um, uh, baseline thing for my brain to sort of not be so panicked and worried and disgruntled by. But if somebody else is talking in my head saying, you're at the beach and smelling the flowers and blah, blah, blah. Like, is that the same sort of thing? I would say if I was to make a um, metaphorical distinction, if I had something I wanted to do to improve how my muscles felt, I could either go swimming, go to the gym, do some qigong or yoga because it's an active me and my muscles, or I can go get a massage. 
So a guided meditation is me lying there getting a you know mind massage by following the imagery or the you know relax your toe, relax your knee, relax your whatever. So by following the um, following the bouncing ball, okay. <laughs> following the, the voice of this guided meditation would be just as um, maybe I'd say it might even be easier then. Well, for some people, that's that's the thing. I mean. You know, if we went through those statistics on the last podcast of all the different things that neurologically becomes a, a you know, it's ADD, it's anxiety, insomnia, addiction, uh, depression, uh, other things that are obviously neurologically important. Um, I mean, technically that means you're sick. So by reaching out and saying, someone please come in here and help me, you know, undo the the symptoms, uh, the the emotional distress, the the memory of myself that this is going to go on forever. I mean, what a blessing to know that, you know, you can press play on a YouTube video or hook into a app on your phone or whatever like that, press a button and trust that this person is going to carry you from a place of relative suffering, uh, distress, psychological, uh, self-evaluation or something to something more positive than that. Uh, I mean, I'm reminded of this app. It's free at first. Uh, it's called Headspace. And it basically, you know, I think it's every week you get a new exercise and it takes you deeper and it's really, really basic. And that's something I would recommend to my patients when I, when I'm having the conversation about meditation and I watch their body language cringe up when I say, well, maybe, you know, I should be doing 20 minutes of meditation a day. And then they're they're looking at the door or the window and get me out of here. Uh, and I'm saying, let's, 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 let's not go with that. And, uh, and that seems to be uncomfortable. Maybe you could just uh, join into a community of people that are working on, you know, developing a relaxation skill, you know, and they're like, Oh, that sounds like a really good idea. Um, there's a friend, uh, no, maybe not a friend, somebody I met a while ago who, um, kind of changed my life by accident. Uh, his name's Josh Trent. He's got a podcast, um, wellness force radio. The guy's a really, really wise uh, living his truth, been through, you know, the dark side and he's, you know, making a huge difference. Um, we should get him on the show actually. He's really into all these little technical widgets and things you put around your head that go onto your phone. And, uh, they're biologically assessing things that you can measure that help you measure your progress. I mean, and here we are in the Western world, you know, very linear and cumulative kind of thinkers. What a great idea for us to be able to go, okay, I'm going to put this little clip on my ear and, you know, do follow the exercises that I'm, you know, being guided to. And it'll tell you, you know, if your blood pressure's changed, your, uh, excitatory state has shifted or anything else like that. So, I mean, we're at a, you know, a groundswell right now in like the 21st century, 2015. I mean, I think 2015 was the year we decided we're going to trust, love, and enjoy technology in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that we can actually hook things up to my head so that I can actually see what's going on in there Yeah, so that I can actually fix it in some way. Yep. Neat. So those are some basic meditations. I mean, I mean, we could do probably five podcasts on all the different kinds of meditation, but I think I just want to keep it as, let's keep this as the beginning of the renovation of your brain, you know, a few months, at least, you know, more than 10 weeks. And it's all about making sure you can at any moment reach that calm place. You're listening to the Fusion Health Rabbit Hole Podcast. Today's podcast is about meditation. <laughs> Jump on in down that <laughs> down that rabbit hole on your own. Yeah, neat. Um, so uh, meditation being a calming thing to allow the brain to uh, relax and repair on its own in whatever form that that actually happens. Um, what else is it that you can say? 
Well, I mean, this is referential to um, uh, First Nations culture and oral traditions and stuff. But I mean, if if the oral traditions of the people who've been in this part of Canada for the last 10,000 years or more, um, if their experience of history is true to history, then that experience is true to everybody else's history too. So again, in the medicine wheel, we relate to the north, to the mind, and to water. And in the oral history of at least, you know, those ancestors of, of mine, uh, the word that they used to describe the, that time in human evolution, it's called the first world or the world of north, the north. Uh, the word that describes that world is nihul dilchil. Uh, say that again. Nihul dilchil. So that word actually describes a certain time of day uh, in its simplest use, but it's used contextually to describe what it's like to be a baby nursing and napping and nursing and napping. Because mm. there's this time of pure sufficiency, uh, safety, trust, support, and nourishment. Right? So again, if we go back to the, uh, you know, how humans went from primates to humans, you know, being scavenging primates who went to the beach to get food because there was nothing else to eat because ice ages take away trees and grass and other things. I mean, and again, from an evolutionary perspective, I think that's pretty much dis undisputable as, as evolution goes, unless we come from outer space, which is cool. And there's some folks who say that we do. Why not? <laughs> but they're indigenous to this creation, so it doesn't actually matter. Okay. <laughs> in, in, in the context of what in, the indigenous experience would be. So I just think it's a really, really interesting thing that um, there's a distinction in, in that culture around what it's like to be a human being, because it's said in the old old stories that that's how we became human beings. And one of, you know, you could say, oh yeah, you eat a lot of fish, you got a big brain, now you're a human being. But more importantly, we learn to share with everybody and make sure there was sufficiency for everybody because who are you going to fight over food when there's an ocean full? Mm. Right? So it's just the memory of a period of time when our survival wasn't about survival because we were thriving. Right? So contextually, I think that's a thing that you know, if you're not feeling that in your life, that's the thing you need to produce in your life is sufficiency and support and trust and uh, a certain kind of safety. I don't think safety is a good idea if it's based on fear, but a, a lack of, I don't know, weird surprises. And again, this relates to um, the winter season mm -hmm. as kind of a, um, I'm just trying to piece together to see if this makes sense. You talked about being in the pit house. Mm -hmm. and being in that quiet space with you and 40 of your closest relatives <laughs> literally right beside them as you're, you're you're living your life in that sort of thing. And that the idea of actually being in a sort of sharing and caring kind of environment is, I mean, that almost sounds meditative too. Uh, yeah, and I'll come back to that because there's a teaching that's really specific to that. The reason I bring up the Nihol uh context is um, there's an opposite and there's an instinct. The opposite experience is, imagine there's an ice age and there's you're not at the beach, so you're living profound scarcity. You're probably living in caves and you're fighting off wombats to just keep yourself shivering in your cave and maybe you've got the wombat skin to stay warm now. But your experience of the world is scarcity, danger, competition, potentially even cannibalism. And, I mean, that's an experience that has happened in human history too. So... You know, and nowadays, 
mean, look at North American consumer culture and retire at 55 and in being taxed to the gills and inflammation and whatever. I mean, we all project what's the next worst thing that can happen. And can I hoard or, you know, coerce or figure out the resources to survive it? So that's, this is this context. So we've all genetically had that experience, but we've all genetically had the experience probably proportionally way more of being at the beach insufficiency because it's like an instinct. Almost everyone, when you say, wow, you're going to go on a holiday, where are you going to go? I'm going to go and lie on the beach and hang out and maybe swim and maybe eat and have lots of sex and then sleep. We're instinctually driven to that's the holiday because that's our race memory across almost every culture in the world. That's what you do when there's no bad things. That's the kind of uh, default that people go to when they don't have, you know, uh, a boss or obligations or kids or any other sort of things nagging at them to occupy their brain in their, uh, their, their lives. Mm -hmm. Huh? Interesting. So, so, I mean, just imagine yourself if you're going to do like a guided meditation. Yeah. Let's start at the beach. And the waves and stuff like that. I mean, I remember having this experience, I don't know, probably 20 years ago, maybe less. I can't remember exactly. Um, standing at the beach with this woman, holding hands, watching the waves, and just reflecting on the masculine and feminine metaphor of, you know, the soil and the ocean and this uh, erosive, supportive, you know, thing that's been going on since, you know, gravity time on the planet. Mm. You know, as a, just a metaphor for breathing and change and uh stillness and stuff it was you know if i'm having a hard time sleeping i either put on these amazing things on youtube that are like 10 hours of thunderstorms or rain or you know animal calls or the ocean yeah i've listened to a few of those before too the uh, uh the distant thunderstorm and rain shower yeah yeah very cool so uh, you said a second ago you were going to come back to the idea of um the pit house and it being kind of meditative to be hanging out with all your family uh, a lot of my patients are in relationships, and sometimes when one person's, you know, ill, which is why they're talking to me, uh, that puts a strain on the relationship, and there needs to be some kind of recourse for that. So one is, uh, I'm sorry, I'm feeling a little shy all of a sudden. Um, I ask my patients as a couple to make each other a tinfoil hat. A tinfoil hat. Yeah, with like little bobbly eyes and weird things and I don't know, feathers or whatever you want. And then you gift your partner the tinfoil hat and give them permission to put it on anytime they're emotionally too tired to deal with you. <laughs> now, when I started doing this with people years and years ago, I said, well, just make yourself a tinfoil hat and put it on when you've had enough of, you know, your, your kid or your you know partner and you need a break. And it's like this subtle communication. <laughs> it's kind of funny where, you know, you're doing the dishes and you've got the tinfoil hat on and no, no one's allowed to talk to you. That's that's the new role. And unfortunately, that became a little bit conflictive because now you, you've got the hat, you've got the power, and no one else can do anything about it. So then the inspiration came, well, maybe if we made the hat for each other, uh, then we're kind of complicit and in agreement with the fact that this is a thing and you really need a break every once in a while. And I mean, the, the number of people who actually brought in their hats and showed me what they did and how much it saved their marriage for me is just like, well, that was what a goofy idea, but what a good one. <laughs> because, I mean, you go back to the pit house and you've got 10 people stuck next to each other for, you know, six months. Um, that That's part of the initial metaphor is, you know, if there's just too many things that irritate you, then you have to find a way to uh, have recourse for that without having to, like, you know, just leave your life. Mm. Yeah, there's no, uh, you're part of that community. You can't really leave. 
you know, there's, there's no way out of the pit house. No. Uh, and you know, a secondary thing with that respect to the, with respect to the calm nourished brain, uh, in, in the context of the pit house is being able to get enough sleep, you know, in the sense that there sure. may be distractions and it doesn't have to be the pit house metaphor. It can be obviously in your life, in your family, with your job and stuff, but without enough sleep, your brain can't get well. And in fact, if you have less than five hours of sleep a night, you're actually basically melting your brain. And you can tune into last podcast where we talk in depth <laughs> about the incredible melting brain yeah. and scare the bejesus out of yourself in the process. So if I was to, to do one more pit house, um, uh, analogy, uh, and this is one of my favorite things to share and I'll probably get all goosebumpy and you know, stuff is there's a teaching, uh, that comes up, uh, especially from people like where I grew up up North, where uh, resource scarcity is a real thing, you know? People like spend the entire trapping and hunting season trying to make sure we have enough stuff stored away um, to get through winter. And the farther north you go, the longer the winter gets. So the more sketchy that is. Hmm. And there's a lot of stories, uh, traditional stories, that have to do with all the different things that have happened when we didn't have enough food stored away. And, you know, the old people will like leave the pit house in the middle of the night and go off and walk north, as the saying goes, uh, until they, you know, lie down and don't get up anymore. And that's considered pretty normal thing. And if you're at a migratory place more farther north where you're still like, you know, the Inuit and Eskimos still moving and hunting, you know, in winter, uh, what would often happen, which sounds even crueler in some way, is the old people would just be bundled up and left behind to die because we have to move to the next food source. And that's the thing with pretty much all traditional peoples is, sorry, but you're like 75. And we love the fact that you remember all the stuff that you do, but right now we need food more than your memories. Right. Okay. So the teaching that comes up with that is called the cold face. The cold face. Yeah. Um, so imagine that you're sitting in, you know, your teepee, your pit house, your, uh, I don't know, whatever you're, you could be on a sailing ship or something. And you're in this, you know, environment with a group of other people and some of them are going to die. Hmm. And uh, the cold face teaching is usually for people who have children, um, but maybe are a bit older than you know, say you're in your 30s and 40s and you've learned lots in terms of skills and stories and, and stuff like that. And, you know, if you're careful with yourself, you probably will make it through the starvation. But in order to do that, you're going to have to basically go on to, the, to become the cold face, which means you sit still, you try and go into a state of torpor, you eat the least amount of food you can possibly survive on to extend the food for everybody else. Uh, when someone's baby dies in the middle of the night, and they're grieving and trying to deal with that. You don't do anything. You just sit there and become implacable. Because if you try and take care of them or deal with all their stuff, then the chance of you actually being one of the people who makes it through spring and get back, you know, you know, you're feeding people in the summer. And when fall comes around, you're the only person who remembers everything, you know, that people need to, to get through life, you know, potentially. And that's why that teaching exists hmm. is to sit there and go, you got to play the long game. And, you know, it's an interesting thing that the most pure expression of love is considered to be the cold face because you've decided to sort of step back and withdraw from what's going on with your people, um, the good, the bad, the uh, weird, the ugly, and the terrifying because you love your people so much that you want to make sure your people remember who they are, you know, depending on who survives in the winter. And I mean, you know, there's all kinds of stories, um, probably more from central northern canada of just families who went off you know on their trap line and never came back wow 
So, I mean, in this, that might sound suddenly morose, but it's not about the literal fact that Native people had hard winters sometimes. It's about asking yourself to play the long game in your own life by saying, I need to go inside. I need to not deal with the superficial, the, you know, erratic, the weird, and really commit to staying calm and making sure you get through anything that's difficult so that as you come back from your hibernation or your you know three months of neuroplasticity or whatever you're going to come back so much wholeheartedly and so much more available and wise to your family your situation or you know yourself because you've actually decided to just completely ignore all of the easily like the most common distracting hooks that just get people carried away you know or that takes them out Again, it's just one of those teachings where you have to sit there and go, yeah, I mean, that's in all, everyone's DNA too, unless you live your entire, you know, genetic history around the equator. It's interesting how the um, the ideas of uh, calm and uh, distance and isolation, um, how they, I guess they represent both sides of the coin. They represent uh, through these stories and ideas that you've shared, uh, indigenous teachings of um death but they also represent in some way um uh, growth and uh maintenance of health yeah i mean that's why i bring it up yeah because it helps i think you frame people in the long term you know because sometimes i know i know if i'm not really really uh conscious about how i'm thinking i naturally float up to the hovering racing surface of western you know adolescent consumer shopping mall culture thinking and everyone's in chronic kind of panic in a way and sometimes, I mean, that's just one way we can be in our minds. But you have to, like, you know, grab onto yourself and commit to something that's way more valuable, which is uh, a more true and um, wise, resilient version of yourself, which just means you just have to completely say all of the BS that keeps getting my attention is no longer allowed to have my attention. Mm, yeah, put on that old tinfoil hat. Yeah, it's just you're doing it to yourself. Very cool. A tinfoil hat on the inside <laughs> <laughs> on your on your little voice on your little person yeah i am no longer available to my neurosis sorry mike's away <laughs> call back later <laughs> yeah put up the old uh, gone fishing sign yeah uh, the cold face is a uh, native uh, idea and teaching um what's next on the list well i mean so i've talked about meditation i've talked about committing periods of time to your neuroplasticity i mean there's tinfoil hats there's uh, all the different things you can do that um, help you commit to calm and nourishing time for your brain. Now, the thing that's always going to be the biggest challenge is addiction. How's that? Well, I just want to contextually sort of touch on something. Addiction is, uh, it's multifaceted. It's not like, oh, I'm an addict or I'm not. I mean, some people are addicted to their video game. They're addicted to their iPhone. They're addicted to... Facebook. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> Ah, I've heard it called face crack. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and then there's obviously substance abuse and, and, you know, almost anything. The context of addiction is um, it's a way of placating ourselves from feeling very, very uncomfortable. So it's inherently something we do to compensate for something else. So we go into this, you know, neuroplasticity thing. So definitely I can't be, you know, overdoing the action movies, the video games, the stimulants, the intoxicants. So during that period of time, you can't obviously be doing anything that's going to be overly stimulating, you know, or, you know, in the sense of addiction to compensate for the fact that now it's time to get to know yourself. 
And in my experience, uh, I mean, I've had my touches with what I, I don't know if I would call it addiction, but definitely substance misuse. Um, and when I've come through the two or three times I've had that experience in my life, and I mean, the first time was like when I was 12, so, uh, which is another story. Um, coming through that is basically deciding that you're more committed to getting to know who you really are than who you are getting away with. Than who you are perhaps even avoiding. Anyway, and that's what I mean. Yeah. So when you're like, okay, it's, you know, calm, nourished brain means I need to be curious about who I really am, warts and all, um, neuroses and all. And I need to be curious and patient enough to find out who I'll be if I rely on something deeper that maybe I haven't given myself the time, hence the patience, to discover about myself. You know, because I think fundamentally and inherently we're a very, very patient, kind, adaptable, and supportive species if we're given that chance to just sit around the campfire and share our thoughts. The average person in Canada... I think is they carry the amount of debt, which is their gross income for a year. So you walk around, most adults walk around a year behind on every bill that they have. Wow. So, I mean, the idea of, oh, I'll take three months and lie on the beach. It's like, mm, that's no one can do that. So we have to find a way to move into the North uh, in our lives with the commitment to deal with the fact we might be doing a whole bunch of compensatory things in our lives because our lives are too carried away. And I mean, I've had that experience enough times in my life, which is okay. That's the, that's the hardest thing to face and, and to completely not do anymore. When you talk about, um, dealing with stuff, uh, dealing with stuff that you're not dealing with in and around addictions, um, the, the question that comes to mind, would you say that people who are mindful or meditative or, uh, participate in these these different things to to have a common nourish brain that they are more um, physically healthy as well. I mean that's that's kind of the premise that I've sort of come to based on what we've been talking about. Um, but in your experience, would you say that's true? I would say it's basically the I know a graduation exam. Okay, I'm doing all this stuff for my health. I'm eating right. I'm taking my supplements. I'm out getting my acupuncture, my massage, whatever. Um, getting lots of sleep, I'm doing this thing. And, um, and in a sense of like tempering steel or a rite of passage, you start to become somebody else. Not like somebody else, like, you know, personality disorder or something like that, but you become that version of you that now remembers yourself as someone who took the time and went through the heebie-jeebies of habit and, and stuff to actually become the patient, curious, uh, self-loving, um, more confident and comfortable, you know, version of yourself because you just spent the neuroplasticity time plus, you know, whatever, you know, proving that to yourself. I mean, that's why I sometimes you know, look at addiction as a rite of passage because we're all addicted to something until we move beyond that reflex. And then you become that person who healed yourself or transformed yourself through that self-limiting practice. The words, uh, ability to digest comes to mind. Hmm. Like if, if, if I'm the kind of person and I'm, I'm not, I'm not one who meditates yet. Um, or in the, in the way that you've described it here with guided meditation or that sort of thing, but I have my own sort of practices of calm and, and relaxation. Um, I'm better able to digest, um, my life 
because of that. And when I'm better able to digest my life and deal with all the stresses and things that go on and be calm and away from them at a time, um, my digestion has improved. Yeah, and it's interesting, the, the word digest, I think, if and not to be all nerdy or picky, but I think the word I would use is assimilation. Assimilation. In the, in the sense that you go through this period of time and assimilate and become that version of yourself who could be patient and curious and, you know, in, in the cold face or whatever, you know, long enough that all the little things, I mean, what, what's that series of books, uh, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff or something? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's one for everybody now. <laughs> You know, but I mean, that's the thing is, you know, it's, we're all control freaks about everything until we're not. And addiction is the ultimate control reflex. Hmm. And I mean, when I think of addiction, I think of, again, my mind keeps wanting to go back to uh, the mechanics of um, bodily functions in terms of health, because that's the, when I think of fusion health radio, mm -hmm. that's where I go to first is like, oh yeah, well, it's all about vitamins and not eating Doritos and <laughs> avoiding diet coke and whatever else it all comes back to the mechanics of of uh the physiology that i have um but i guess I'm re it's really sort of sinking in and i'm sort of saying it out loud so that i can hear myself think because that's what i like to do um is that the meditative processes of, of calming the brain and assimilating uh more of um my life in a way that's less stressful um allows the rest of those mechanical things to do the same sort of thing and, and be in a place where I'm not uh, prone to binging or uh, going off the and getting a, a bad drunk on or something like that. I'm not in this sort of addictive place because I'm not really attracted to things that way. I mean, yeah, and that just means you've been through that rite of passage. Yeah. In the context of meditation, there's this fun question that's often asked, especially around Taoist meditation and you know, over time as you get more into it. And the question is, who is the one meditating? And that could be who is the one going to work this morning? Who is the one um, working out the tricky things in relationship? Who is the one raising a child, you know, on your own or with another person or with a lot of people? Um, who is the one trying to get their PhD in neuroplasticity or something? And um, it's kind of like a fractal thing in a sense. There's or onion thing. Like there's layers and layers and layers. But when you ask that question, who is the one, you're inviting yourself to actually find out. Hmm. You know, in the sense that maybe the uh, avatar we call Michael Smith is actually really just something that's been padded over uh, one aspect of consciousness. And the one speaking may be referencing to a self, Michael Smith, or it might just be the, the voice of contemporary consciousness. And as I, I mean, that's a pretty big, you know, yeah. sort, of, sort of stance or something like that. But it just sort of frames that context, which is, you know, we're either going to be the, the, the most worried, impatient, reflexive, reactive version of ourselves, or we're going to try and work our way down gradually into who we truly innately really are. And that's really about trusting and taking care of and nurturing the the part of you that determines so much from the top down around your health. Because you take care of your brain, you're implicitly going to be in a place where all the other reflexive, addictive, um, uh, urgent choices are no longer your go-to choices. And again, the, I, the imagery is just snapping up into my mind here. When you talk about um, who is the one meditating, it makes me think, 
that the brain that lives inside my head and the body that's actually sitting below it isn't necessarily the thing meditating. Well, now, now we're into the, <laughs> I wish I could do the twilight zone. Sound, but. You know, like the, who I am, you know, the, um, this little meat suit that I walk around in <laughs> is, um, uh, is affected by the, um, the essence of me, the consciousness that's me and, um, what it, and how it deals with, with life. And, uh, I don't know if that's, maybe that's a little bit too far afield for, well, we've kind of, you know, I would say we've kind of cut the bungee cord on, um, leaping off into space. Because mm. at, at a certain point, it, it's not about concrete, practical things. It's about that um, sort of vast, spacious realization or remembering um, that what's really going on has always really been going on. And, and it's always really going to continue going on. And we can sort of step into that stream as a resource, um, as well as live our modern contemporary lives, or ignore, or ignore that aspect of what's really going on completely. You know, and this is a bit of a side of where the conversation was intended to go, but that's okay. Um, when we when we actually rest into whatever you might call a spiritual potential or awakening or uh, relationship, I mean that's that's obviously I think for what we call brain health, um, that probably the biggest resource, because then it isn't just around problems; it's about who is the one facing the problems which may be as vast as the universe instead of, oh man, I, my childhood was really messed up. I probably aren't going to be able to figure this out. Because you know? right. we look at the limits and the problems instead of potentially um, a much vaster sense of our, our opportunity and our journey here. When I've had experiences where I'm more in that sort of a bungee, what do you call it? Bungee cord cutting free place. When I'm more out there um, and I can look back at how it is that I'm actually living my life and doing things, um, I sometimes have the opposite where it's like, I'm actually sitting right in the middle of something stressful or whatever it is that's going on. And so I'm sort of looking off into space going, Oh yeah, right. I'm really out there. <laughs> this, this is just stuff that's happening. I don't know. I, I suppose that that's probably my, my, uh, um, my questioning on how, uh, meditation actually affects me personally. And I'm, I'm hoping I'm not derailing your ideas around, um, the, the idea of talking about a, a calm and, and nourished brain, but it, it, it just strikes me as being the obvious thing to, to say that, um, brain health and self-awareness and self, um, acceptance, uh, and how that actually affects all the mechanics of everything that's going on and how I'm not really, um, I'm sort of sitting above, like there's my brain, which sits on top of my shoulders, which sits on top of my body. And then there's me who's kind of separate and above all of that, um, which is kind of healthy um, um, for me to be I, thinking about I that think for myself. That, that would be the beginning of being really healthy. And then I would take that point of consciousness and plant it right back into your spine and say, and you're here to actually be the body. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm not suggesting that I like to, you know, float around off the ground. <laughs> <clears throat> no, I'm just uh, helping frame kind of the context of who is the one meditating because we do have to give up on the in-place hardcore ego version of the body to come back into the body uh, as actually just life. Mm. Right. Um, so let's see if we can bring this back down to earth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to see if we can plant our feet down on the ground. Um, we were we were talking about addiction before 
I started floating off outside of my body here. Was there anything <laughs> else on the list of things to, to talk about? I guess we've sort of covered it all. Yeah, because, I mean, in the context of the winter thing, it's, you know, there's neuroplasticity, there's the time it takes, there's uh, opportunities like meditation, and then there's that contextual thing around hibernation and um, perhaps the genetic memory of how in the past we have been nurtured and supported and safe and, you know, having sufficiency for everyone. And there's times where it's been about scarcity and the response to that scarcity is either greed and control or the response to scarcity is more about the cold face, you know, because I mean, in, in human history, scarcity is either, you know, competition for resources like war, you know, or it's, you know, there's no one coming to steal our food, but we're still starving to death anyway. Mm. You know, and I'm not trying to bring up the morose. It's just, you know, our strength of character really is uh, our spiritual resourcefulness and our personal resourcefulness around the things that are really challenging that you can't just change. You can't just pay somebody off. You can't just, you know, maybe we will at some point you can just take the magic pill that just scrubs out all that trauma and conditioning. But at this point, it's up to us. <laughs> take reset pill. <laughs> take this magic pill and reset all the crap that's going on inside your head. Trade, trademark that now, dude. <laughs> Resetopill.com. Sponsors of today's Fusion Health Podcast. <laughs> Um, this has been awesome. A uh, very, very uh, trippy kind of thing to be talking about brain health. Uh, this has been part two um, of the, I guess, the four-part series that you want to do on brain health. Uh, do you know what we're up to next? Uh, next is going to be spring. So it's going to be kind of like growth and uh, regeneration and a bit more about the mechanics and fun about what different kinds of exercise can do for your brain and what fasting in a deeper way can do for your brain. Um I'm hoping to repeat each thing that's important in each episode of the series and focus in on different parts of it in each episode so we can pop open the, the particular can and let the, you know, the, the details come out. Mm -hmm. Neat. And um, I'm sure that conversation is going to be equally as uh, profound. <laughs> I think uh, my headset fits a little tighter today because my brain is bigger. <laughs> I'm going to need a nap after this. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the next one I think is going to be really exciting because it's really about that, um, I don't know, Phoenix rising from the ashes kind of thing. Wow. Sounds very cool. Just like that truck in the background. Uh, <laughs> I guess that wraps up uh, today's episode of uh, Fusion Health Radio. And on that, Dear listener, we want to hear from you. You can search for Fusion Health Radio on Facebook, and that's where you can leave us your comments, ask Michael questions, and offer your own ideas for a Fusion Health Radio podcast topic. And you can also find us on iTunes. Uh, look for Fusion Health Radio there, and you can subscribe and access the complete library of our podcasts. And while you're there, please do write us a review. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, leave us a note on Facebook or iTunes. And please share this with someone you know who you'd love to improve the health of. Thanks for listening. Fusion Health Radio is the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast featuring Dr. Michael Smith. I'm your host, Anthony Santa, and we will see you next time. And again, please take care of your brain. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.